Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. Yes, so I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. And we are coming to you live on a conversation that has really been resonating with me a lot as I've been thinking about it recently. And we're going to start off with a, I think, a very useful quote that thematically summarizes what we'll be talking about today with the the idea of the enemies of learning, especially for those of us who we would say we're in the second half of life. Now, I don't know for you how long your, your lifespan will be. You don't know either, but it depends on how you define the second half of life. A lot of people want to define it at age 50, which I have recently hit, but how many people are really living to 100? Well, I'm that's sure that's my plan. <laughs> I'm I've sure already, that's a I've already lot of put people's... in my order. <laughs> You've just and done some research on this. That's right. And I'm so glad you asked because uh, I couldn't believe it, but the U.S., uh, the average U.S. American, well, the U.S. male lives to be on average 74.5 years old. Kind of stunning, which ranks 52nd amongst the uh, other nations. And women, 5.7 years longer at 80.2 years. So, hey, I don't know, half of 74 and a half is around 37. So, for those. That's a little sobering, I think. It is. I'm well on my way in that case. Anyway, the futurist. He was, he was a futurist, he was an author and writer and brilliant thinker, Alvin Toffler. He famously said, The illiterate of the future are not those who can't read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. So some of the ideas today that we're going to be talking about with uh, enemies of learning, they include your attitudes, maybe some assessments that you permanently make or mindsets that you have when they become firmly rooted, they make your learning, your, your constant curiosity, and therefore your growth difficult. And a lot of these ideas do come from a, a, an incredible book, I would say kind of a masterpiece book called Language in the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence by Chalmers Brothers and Vinay Kumar. And I think they get some of these ideas from Newfield Network founder Julio Olala. You just like saying his name. <laughs> Julio Olala. Olala. Name is very alliterative. So basically, Shelley, what we're going to be sharing today is that you know we've we've been talking about one thing that really registers with us is this idea of the typical way that without even knowing it, we've been raised in our culture is to have, and then we will do, and then we will be. This this concept reminds me of the famous quote by Don Draper of Mad Men, if you haven't heard this one, which, you know, summer, it was a 1960s advertising firm, if you don't know, from where Mad Men was a famous advertising firm in New York City. And he summarizes in this one quote, the idea of marketing from at least an American Western point of view Right here. 
advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you are doing is okay. You are okay. <laughs> so that oh, Don would be you. proud. I don't know. He did it <laughs> much better. But uh, that—that's the idea that. You know, it's the idea, Shelly, I, I don't know if you have any personal stories of this to share, but I remember when I was about seven years old, living out in Marin County, California, and we were all the boys were racing and we all wanted to be the fastest. And I remember there was this advertising, I think it was Zips, and there were these Zips. there were these cool shoes. They were like green and yellow, um, which I guess looked like the Oakland A's and looked cool to me. And uh, those tennis shoes, I, they like the advertising was like, if you get them, you will run faster. And somehow I got lucky enough for my parents to buy me not one, but two pairs of shoes. So they must have been buy one, get one free. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and, uh, and I got them and I believed that with that tennis shoe, I jumped higher and I ran faster and that I was an all around better athlete. And I mean, that's seven. I think we all will have gobs of stories yeah. because that's just the soup we're all swimming in. It is. That's a, exactly. And I think it appeals to the the humanistic desire to kind of bypass and get just get a thing and then I'll be happy. You know, and there's yeah. there's a ton of research that busts this myth in positive psychology mm. um, that we know that if you get something, we believe that then we'll be happy with that thing. Well, what happens is the hedonic treadmill Ooh. after a while it goes back to the baseline as if you never had the thing in the first place. And so it doesn't work. Yes. Right, advertising correct, and, right. and this belief is built on a fallacy that we can somehow kind of jump to the thing making us happy. And we just know that. So that doesn't, that doesn't, it has a very short shelf life. Well, we say that. And, and by the way, of course, there's nothing wrong with advertising and marketing in and of themselves. We all participate in that. Uh, those things are amoral. They are a tool. They can be used in what, whatever uh, given way display. But here's the thing. It displays our value systems and therefore reinforces the ways that we are, we learn. And so, Shelly, you're saying it's it seems obvious the hedonic treadmill that you're referring to, but I mean, it's like it takes a little bit of examination to see how we do it. And so, I don't know. What we're trying to do is inverse this very idea the idea that you begin with being. You don't have to have anything, you can begin with some self awareness, some self knowledge, and, and that leads to your doing, and then that leads to your having. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about what does that mean? The being, you know, the, the idea that you become and then yes. you do, and then you have. So it really is kind of the inverse of the formula that most people subscribe to. And so this idea of 
being first. I think we really want to tackle that in this episode. And you're kind of setting up the idea that the being is really about a couple things. It's about embodying and it's about learning. And so really this idea that you can become something you can embody new ideas, new values, a new identity uh, through learning. You do begin with yourself, whether or not you're on a personal growth journey or you are on a professional growth journey, if you think of it that way. Either way, it does begin with you. A lot of times, an organization, startup, whatever, whatever it may be, they speak of core competencies, this idea that your organization needs to have a set of skills or actions and every employee needs to embody these these skills or traits in order for the organization to survive and be its best. And for us, we're suggesting that in order for you, the individual, to be your best, you must push through your assumptions, maybe unexamined ones, be willing to learn, unlearn, and even in some cases, relearn. Yeah, I love this idea that learning, being able to learn, is the kind of paramount core competency. The foundation of all of that is being willing to learn and being willing to unlearn and relearn right. and examine and let go of the things that don't serve you anymore. Learning how to learn. That is the, the what this whole uh, podcast episode is about. It's the to, to me, it's the ultimate mm-hmm. core competency. So like Shelly, how did you learn how to ride a bike? Did, first of all, let me ask you like did you did you learn how to ride a bike by reading about it? No. No, I think I was scared at first. And I can't remember, honestly, like I know my mom or my dad taught me. Don't, it may have actually been, even been my sister, I, you know, but it, it was just uh, through osmosis, being outside, watching other kids ride. And I was like, oh. I want to do that. And, and I did have a terrible bike wreck. Okay. So you fell? When I was like seven, maybe. Right. But I remember like, it really shook me and I did not want to get on a bike for a long time. Like, like it really messed up my chin and teeth and all kinds of things. Um, but your chin looks beautiful now. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> scarred, but you know. Um, yeah, so I, I think it was just the experience. I was, you know, around a bunch of kids that were learning to ride, and so I was just did it. I just figured it out. I remember uh, once the training wheels were off after a good, you know, and it didn't really feel ready for that. Training wheels off, and I fell, and I cried, and I was mad at my dad for making me get back on. Mm-hmm. But... Kind of kept doing it. And so to me, that is like principle number one here as we're getting to the enemies of learning is that learning equals doing, not not reading about it, not thinking about it, actually doing the thing even when you're not good at it. Mm-hmm. And as we become adults, we become less willing to to try that thing. And so I have a little formula here, basically, and it is that learning equals doing plus time. 
And the time plus the practice. Now, if you wanted to add one more, one more part to the equation, you could say that learning equals doing plus practice. The just doing it again and again, cause and effect. And then you could also add to it that you could ratchet up the intensity in the practice and then give it also rigor. Now, the idea comes from, so Malcolm Gladwell popularized some of the research from K. Anders Erickson about the 10,000 hours to develop a, a practice. Well, the long and short of it is that what Erickson was saying the accumulation of 10,000 hours was about was deliberate engagement with challenge. Mm-hmm. That's how you build new skills, abilities, and knowledge sets. So it was this deliberate practice. Yeah, it makes me think of um, uh, Csikszentmihalyi's idea of flow. Ooh. Flow theories, uh, psychological theory of flow, is challenge times mastery equals flow. So when you mm-hmm. have a challenge, um, kind of, and it's a it's a gradation of challenge. So it's like constantly you're being up leveled. A little bit, mm-hmm. and you master, and you ma- that, that's the flow state. Um, and I know we're not talking about flow; that can be a different podcast. But, but it does. It does make me think like my best learning is, yeah, it's like right out of my awareness. It's like right. I'm not quite good at it, but I'm intensely curious about something. So that for me creates that learning environment where I want to keep practicing, whether it's being a really good coach, um, even like the practice of, of deep listening, mm-hmm. I think is something that you really do learn through practice. Like what, what that there's levels of listening. And so, um, it, for me too, it's an, it's learning and then it's an application of the learning. Like it's not enough just to know something, and I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, but right. um, the application, the praxis of it is where mm. I really, uh, for me personally, that's where I come alive and feel a lot of flow. I love it. That's a that's a nice connection. And also, you know, the idea, and we won't go too deep into this right now, but just the, the, like, because I think we're actually saving it up for the very next episode when we talk about uh, resistance to change. And one of the things when you begin to go into learning mode, when you just begin starting to really like going, huh, I, I want to be more curious and learn about, learn about my learning and become a learner, you're going to face a little bit of initial resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we think about it like on a, if we think about like companies and organizations and we think about it from that point of view, sometimes you notice, especially like during this pandemic and some black swan events that have recently been happening, that some of the best companies, they protect their market positions, they retain their best people, and they go into learning mode. Mm-hmm. During times of stress and some resistance. And I, I, I mean, it's so challenge and being willing to learn does mean that you might have to go th- into some challenge, which you could characterize as good stress, hmm. good stress. Yeah. What is it? You stress, not distress. Yes. Yeah. Can we get into the Let's do the it enemies? right now. Number here are our seven enemies of learning plus 
We want we don't want to just give you the enemies and leave you hanging. We want to give you a little bit of an antidote. Yeah, and as we go through this list, I really want to encourage you to think about where are you mm-hmm. being led in your life to be learning right now? Like what's coming up in your life that feels a little bit like resistance. Um, maybe there's some fear, but there's also some curiosity and some interest around it. That's probably where you are being led to do a little learning, to be in learning mode a little bit. It may be just outside of your comfort zone, and that's probably where you're growing. Um, so as we go through this list, think about that for yourself. And I'm really, honestly, there's a lot more than these seven. Right. <laughs> so I've taken some that I think could be really applicable to a lot of people. We might do a part two on this and have another seven. Number one, our inability to admit that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we've, you know, learned the value of knowing in, in school. You're taught, I mean, we're, it's right away. You're, you're embarrassed in front of your peers if you don't know something when you're called on. So it's not okay not to know. And we, and if we, not knowing is something that we judge in ourselves and we judge in others. But guess what? I don't know is the place where new learning begins. It's a really vulnerable place. Like yeah. we just talked about shame on the la- on one of our last podcasts yeah. and I'm I'm you know I'm thinking about the times in my life when I kind of default into that um foreclosing is the word I always think of. Like I'm kind of closing up shop. I'm like, I'm not going to be willing to learn or kind of step into um, not knowing something. And it's usually shame, I think is what you're talking about. This belief that it's not okay. It's exposing me. I'm going to be humiliated because I don't know something. And so it's easier to posture and be like, oh, I'm just going to (laughs) pretend... That I know or that I know what I'm talking about. Oh, then it, it is so to be often. like, you know, I don't know. Like yeah. that's a very vulnerable thing to say. I would see it in the workplace a lot where there were some guys, I have to admit that they were kind of gifted at being able to speak in jargon when asked something that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And they could sort of like camouflage you in smoke and mirrors right. with with their jargon. But it's I call that Obfuscating. Ooh, well, the... it's, yeah, that that's one one way to characterize it. Um, I remember uh, taking another little anecdote when I was um, in graduate school, and we had to take um, a foreign language requirement, and I was taking graduate level Spanish, and I remember thinking there were these times where I was like, I feel like a child. Mm-hmm. having to construct this most basic sentence and being un and, and meanwhile I'm reading the highest level philosophy and post-colonial literature and you know and and I was like and I was I didn't like it and I was like I d- I want to express myself in the sophisticated way that I can now and that was an enemy to my learning that I can now recognize Mm -hmm. in in my process, you can, you don't, like a child has such a great advantage uh, in this because it's okay for them to constantly explore and see and and, and constantly learn. And Mm -hmm. so as we go into the the antidote to, to this, 
I would say that the overall thing that I want us to encourage us to have is to have a sense of awe and wonder about the world and how much we don't know. Hmm. Yeah. So the antidote that we want to offer is a beginner's mindset. Even if you have expert status in a given field or industry, what would it be like to uh, embrace a little bit of a beginner's mindset? So this is coming up a lot for me right now um, around writing. And, you know, thinking about writing a book, I'm very aware of this perfectionism, this um, protective part of me that wants to kind of plow forward, write words, be perfect. And I'm constantly reminding myself of Anne Lamont's shitty first draft. (laughs) Yeah. And even my writing coach is like, Nobody gets to see this first draft. <laughs> That's right. Like it's supposed to be bad. Mm-hmm. Have have a learner's, have a beginner's mindset, yeah. and just let it form. Like everything in nature, it has to evolve. You know, it has to start with this like little you know seed, and then it begins to grow into something um, more formed and kind of ready for the world. But everything starts as a learner, as a beginner, as a seedling. Um, So I'm trying to remind myself of that as I'm very aware of the perfectionist who wants to have it all kind of polished as it comes out. So I think this is a really good thing for people to think about as they're moving into growth and learning in their own lives. Absolutely. Excellent example. Number two, Confusing learning with acquiring information, which is basically our lead-in point, right? It's that we often confuse gathering a lot of information about something as as knowing what we are talking about as opposed to doing, right? So you, you have to, you can't just uh, learn a lot of it. We're in the information age, and yet how little we really know. Mm -hmm. Can I say an Anne Lamott quote again? (laughs) (laughs) I will not stop you. She says, you cannot think your way to a purposeful life. Mm. And um, and I think she she goes on and expands on that. But the idea is that you have to, it's about action. It's about... Yes, there's, there's reflection, there's introspection, um, but if you want to create anything important or worthy, <laughs> like you have, to, you have to act, you have yeah. to kind of bring it out into kind of living, breathing form, um, and I think that's probably true for any learning. Like anything, it's yeah. not enough to just kind of be cerebral, cerebral about it. You really do have to then, um, or it just stays knowledge, right? It's not yes. real learning. Learning is embodiment. It's a, it, it changes who you are. It becomes, Ooh. you know, something in the world. That's it. The antidote is to recognize that learning creates a change in your behavior. That's learning. Yeah. Or, or at least the possibility. For a new behavior. And it might be small, though. It, it might, might be. And it might look insignificant, even to yourself. 
Like that's just, that's not really that big of a deal. I just, you know, changed one little thing, but that's learning. And that's often how learning starts. Absolutely. It's tiny, tiny little moments of, of shifts that happen because you've now embodied new information. I love it. So learning equals doing. Let's remember that one. And number three, Shelly. Yeah. So number three is a lack of priority for learning. And so this might be, and I um, am guilty of this. I don't really have time. Oh yeah. Like I, we just kind of keep doing what we're doing, even if it's not working because to learn something different or to unlearn what's not working, it does take work. It takes time and, um, it's a process. Like I'm saying with, you know, in nature, everything takes time. <laughs> and so there's a, the, the belief that we don't have time, um, f- you know, and I, I think too, if we're just open and aware about what life is bringing to us, just being like, oh, well that felt bad. I feel resistance around that, or I'm really interested in that. That's where learning can happen. It doesn't, it's not something you do on the sidelines of life. It's something that happens in the middle of your life. So we do have time for it if we're just open to it. Yeah. Uh, And so I find about this idea that the irony is that we are, it's, we're so busy Packing in all that we're doing, that there is no, if there's no time for learning, think about how little of value is actually getting done. So, when what we are doing isn't working, you know, simply doing the same things faster and faster and faster, that doesn't get us what we want or need either. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the antidote. Recognize what you prioritize. So do you prioritize efficiency, just like quickly getting from A to B, or can you prioritize time to learn, to learn in the process, to reflect in the process, uh, to be to be observing how you value and what you spend your time doing? So I think that's a that's a way to think about making time for some new learnings. Number four, lack of trust. And and yeah, so there's a little bit of a balancing act that you have to do when it comes to trusting your source because distrust will derail your process. So you do have to trust your teachers. You do have to allow the expert to guide you. But at the same time, there are a lot of reasons to distrust. So what is required is trust with prudence. We reserve the option to withdraw our trust at any point during the process. And there are ways that people build trust with us. They make an assertion, they make a claim, they make a statement, and then they follow through and deliver with the statement. And they can be micro actions, as Shelley was referring to earlier, or they can be big actions. And each time they demonstrate that they are worthy of our trust. I think this one is really tricky, especially kind of the climate of our world right now. Um, cause I, I do understand the idea of lack of trust. We tend not to want to learn from people or ideas or institutions that we don't trust. Uh, and I would also add, don't respect. I think there's a 
piece of that happening. Um, you know, and so there, there is this kind of, the word that keeps coming into my mind right now is absolutes. Like there are, are there, I guess I'll pose the question, kind of absolutes. Are there moral absolutes that, you know, we're, we, I have that I'm unwilling to unlearn (laughs) because, (laughs) because they are so intrinsic to, uh, my value system, my worldview, who I am, how I see things. And so it's, it is mistrust, but it also is this, I'm not going to learn from, and I'm thinking politically, right? I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, um, what can we learn from people who have opposing viewpoints, either hmm. either you know politically or religiously or you know whatever big thing um, I think we we tend to fight about. <laughs> and I get there are some things, there are some um, some open windows I can have in conversations because I guess I trust the process. I trust my own discernment not necessarily trusting the other person because I do think um, pretty quickly you can learn that you're just on two different planets in some when it comes to kind of these ideas circulating. And so, yeah, so I think yeah. it is tricky. It's like how and that will break trust. can I learn from someone that I just in a deep fundamental way don't agree with? And I don't believe their worldview or value system or what they're saying. So I think this one is very difficult in the world that we are all living in right now. And it's one that I know I'm stretched daily to think about. And I love this idea of experiments with courage. So are these like small ways that I can be courageous in conversations, even when I don't trust the person? Yeah, it's one of our antidotes right here, right? To play a game called Experiments with Courage. What does that mean to you, Experiments with Courage, as an antidote? To envision all the ways something could go wrong, you know, and that's your distrust, and then allowing yourself to ask yourself, well, what would just a, how could just a little trust transform my experience? Yeah, I think you know? too, I want to say one more thing about this. I think that we can, even if we don't want to learn from another person's or institution's um, knowledge base, maybe we can learn to trust their story, to trust their perspective and how they got to it. Um, so that I think I can do, even if I'm on different planets with someone. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and yeah, I will say like my time at, um, in my clinical psychology program at Wheaton really mm-hmm. taught me this. Like you don't have to agree. You don't have to kind of come to that. The end conclusion is the same, but you do have to hear a person's story and trust their perspective and that they got to it in a way that makes sense for them. So, so you can hold those two things together at the same time. It's hard. It takes maturity and it takes some um, self-awareness and discernment, but you can do it. And I think that's, you know, I'm, and if we're talking about learning new skills, that is a lot of the learning 
that I think we can be doing right now is that I don't have to agree with your perspective or your theory or your value, but I can trust that the way you got to it makes sense for you. That's beautiful. I love the way you put that. I'm serious. <laughs> um, all right. So why don't you hit us with number five? Okay. This is, I could speak for hours about this one. <laughs> it, so one of the other enemies, I see this a lot in um, yeah. work we do, ignoring the emotional dimension of learning. And let's be clear, it's all emotional. <laughs> there is emotion kind yeah. of embedded in all the learning that we're doing. We Many people, myself included, we like to think that it's just cognitive, and it's not. There is... Um, there's a lot of learning. I did a little TED Talk. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, another shameless Ten, plug. No. Wait, was that a, 10 years ago? No. Yeah, maybe no. 2015. Yeah. Oh, that's right. But Just seven. I talked about, and I still love this idea. So at the MIT Sloan School, there is a, um, I don't know if it's a program there. I guess it's a program on mm-hmm. collective intelligence. So they really are looking at how do high-performing teams function. And in a lot of research, they found that the most high-performing teams, they all had one thing in common. They had women on the team. And really looking at, okay, why? Let's unpack that. Why? Because women um, kind of serve as this, um, they're this socially perceptive in a very natural kind of unconscious way, picking up on cues, um, on nuance, understanding facial expressions. So I just think it's fascinating that there is this, you know, supported by a lot of research that learning and and adaptivity, I think that's what's important too. High-performing teams uh, pivot quickly. Like when things aren't working, they're able to do that quickly. And a lot of times because there's, when you have the social perceptiveness, there's a lot of psychological safety. And so when you have that, when decisions have to be made quickly, things have to pivot, then you do it um, in a, a less kind of friction kind of way. It's just a little bit easier. And it all goes back to this idea that if you ignore the emotional dimension of learning, you're like robots. You're, you may make decisions, but they're not yeah. quick and they're cerebral. And so you don't have the whole team on board. But the second uh, piece of emotional intelligence is what I'm talking about with that women do really well is the social perceptiveness that we, we don't, you know, there is the first step of understanding self yes. and then it is kind of this uh, going outside and how do I exist in this space between me and another person mm-hmm. in a positive way and to, that creates, that creates trust. And number six, ignoring the body as a dimension of learning. And this is something when we teach with the Enneagram theory, we teach about the body center of intelligence. We teach about the heart, emotional center of intelligence in the head. And the body, I think, gets maybe historically with research and a lot of application, it's been ignored. I think we're beginning to realize its importance more and more and more about the ways that we literally can learn 
through what the body is telling us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, some of the great books. The Body Keeps the Score. Classic um, And already. The Body Says No by Gabriel Mate. Um, there's so much new information that's really come out in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years even, that does talk about body, the body's wisdom and how it communicates and the connection with the mind. And it's a, it's very subtle. And so I think when we're distracted and in a living life in a busy world, we really miss the cues that our body's trying to teach us something. And um, which is, you know, the theory of a lot of this work is around the body will get louder and louder and louder. And this is where a lot of our diseases come from, our illnesses and things that um, are contained in the body that they really do have information for us. And I do a lot with clients where when they, you know, come in and they don't know where to start or they don't know what to talk about or they don't know like a decision they need to make is that a lot of kind of the work is just stilling the mind and letting the body communicate. Yes. And there is so much wisdom in that if we can if we can see it. There is, and I'm still opening myself up more and more out of kind of a rigidity that my body has revealed to me in some of the postures that you know I've I've been practicing. And so what the body can do is I well here's what here's my antidote is to is to approach what the body can do as a space for learning with some openness so, uh, some awe like I was talking about in the very first one and and some wonder just mm. just try to tap into that. And, and yes, there are physical disciplines that you could take up that aren't just, you know, about working out to make yourself, your outer appearance look good, but for what being in your body can teach you. Yeah, I think the the, the body is the portal to the learning. It's not, it's not necessarily the learning itself, but it's the vehicle for some really deep learning. And the way that that shows up for me is noticing in my body where there's tension or, or I have a stress response, um, you know, where I'm feeling that. And for me, it's usually in my, my belly and my heart or, you know, chest area. And then the, the practice then becomes, okay, well, what if usually there's a fear, um, unconscious. And so what is, what is it that's percolating? What fear is happening or what emotion is happening that I need to pay attention to? And then I can like do the work, the actual kind of self-reflection. What it, maybe, maybe it is a learning that I'm, it's happening. Like I'm moving into a new area and I feel scared, or maybe there's something that I'm unlearning, but, mm-hmm. but the body's wisdom is indicating when there's kind of some tension around whatever's showing up in your life. And so I think if we can see it as a cue to the learning, I I think it expedites the learning if we can use our body. And the final enemy of learning in this episode is living in permanent assessment, or you constantly have big opinions and judgments on any given subject. And you kind of think there's only one way that something can be. And I mean, if you think about it, opinions are not knowledge. They're an opinion. 
And so it could be that you have, when you have these strong opinions or these powerful assessments, that you're simply, you're foreclosed, closing down your ability to learn. I do think the world um, needs authorities. Needs leaders, needs people to step into strong opinions um, who have done the work and who have a high degree of knowledge and skill in certain areas. And so um, for years, yeah. I think I, I lived in permanent assessment and self-doubting almost of like, hmm. I'm not quite um, authoritative enough. And... I, you know, and I think people will fill in those gaps, probably people that know a lot less than I do, who maybe feign confidence or just, you know, they don't, they haven't done the work or learned as much. And so I do right. think there's, I don't know there's value. I, I, I like the living in permanent assessment. Like to me, if you're living in permanent second guessing, um, that's not good. Like if it's constant self-doubt, that's not good. But I do think there is, to have strong opinions, um, to really believe in what you've spent a lot of time learning, to be an authority, to really step into that with power, because I, I think that's what we need right now, are really strong leaders who have done the work. I can, I can appreciate your, your point of view. It's uh, almost the paradox. Like it is. Two, two things can be true at the same time. Yep. I think it's tricky. Okay. Being willing to learn, but yet also standing in your authority. That's the paradox. Well, I guess that is. And so maybe that's the, the antidote, is being able to listen to another view when presented, but also being able to understand and appreciate the conviction of your own assessments, especially if what you've backed up behind them is, has been a curiosity that has led to learning that has, we're not saying that you have no boundaries and you can't uh, have your own convictions, right? right? But a lot of people, I think, just have the opinions and not a lot of substance behind them. Yes, yeah. So, interesting point. So, with that, given all of these enemies of learning, what gets in the way of your learning as you confront new situations that may demand new actions? The quote we're going to leave you with is this. When any real progress is made, we unlearn and learn anew what we thought we knew before. That's from Henry David Thoreau. And to leave you with this, go forth and learn. And Shelly, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the offerings and interesting things that are going on with Big Self School right now? Well, I want to focus on one in particular. So as we are heading into the holiday season, one of the things that we really want you to know about, um, even possibly as a gift for somebody, we do Enneagram typing packages. Um, which are kind of a dip your toe into the pond of Enneagram. So if, if someone knows 
maybe about the Enneagram. They kind of have an idea of their type. They don't really know what to do with it. This would be a really fun gift for them. Uh, and what it is, is a test that uh, gives you your type, your subtype, your instinctual sequence. And then we do a 90 minute typing interview. So we really dive deep into your personal history so that we can understand your personality structure. And then we also do a 60 minute follow-up coaching call where we help you figure out what to do with it. So now I know this is my subtype, my type, what do I do with it? And so this package is, uh, again, it's for somebody that's really curious about learning their type and what to do with it. And you can go to our website, bigselfschool.com, and you can learn more.